Welcome to the Daily Boogie. Welcome to another edition of the Daily Boogie Podcast. It's good to be back. Thank you for your patience. As I said on Twitter earlier today, uh, it's been a pretty chaotic uh, last week and a half, so we just haven't had time to get in front of the mic and have a discussion like we normally would like to, but we're back on board now, ready to roll, and I've got a great episode lined up for you today. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for sharing. By the way, if you want to become a supporter of the show, please head over to patreon.com forward slash boogie bumper. If you'd like to subscribe, hit the subscribe button on your preferred podcast player. And if you'd like to get involved in the conversation, please join me on Twitter at boogie bumper. It's good to be with you as always. So the post-mortem for the midterm elections continues and you know, what, what's self-evident, what's obvious in these kinds of scenarios and situations is whatever the result, the spin machines on both sides of the major houses <clears throat> continues in earnest. It's a little more difficult to spin obviously bad results. With results such as this one, the spin comes quite quickly and quite naturally from Republicans claiming a win due to some rather meagre gains in the Senate, to, of course, obviously the Democrats claiming a win to retaining the House. All of the pre-election predictions are now put to the side and we carry on making new predictions moving into the future, which is precisely the point of today's show. Do you want the good news or the bad news? <laughs> it's, it's, I've got a couple of pieces here while I myself was analysing the midterm post-mortem. And rather interestingly, we've got a, a perspective from the right, which is doom and gloom for the Republicans, and a perspective from the left, which is not doom and gloom for the Democrats, but you know they need to change their behaviour in order to keep these wins coming. So it's, it's a very interesting one indeed. Just on the spin though, obviously... When you have things that happen, such as the you know the twenty sixteen election results, and you know I I myself cringe when people bring up twenty sixteen, but just to put things into perspective, it was very difficult, obviously, for the Democrats to spin twenty sixteen in their favour, because it was such a monumental and quote unquote unexpected defeat. It was not the reality that was presented to people for the twelve months leading into the presidential election. So it was very difficult for them to spin it in a positive way. Of course, they did, that didn't stop them trying to spin it in an overtly negative way. But the spin was so fast and so ridiculous and the story changed so often that the, the American public and indeed the public viewing in to the bubble from around the rest of the world uh, you know, the spin from the Democrats and their sycophantic warriors in the mainstream corporate press 
was was changing so quickly that they didn't really even give people a chance to absorb it. So it never really took hold. I mean, it was a white lash. The Russians did it. It was misogyny. It was sexism. It was homophobia. It was the rise of white nationalism or the Ku Klux Klan. However way it was spun and continues to be spun to this day. Well, I think in part it just shows the utter absurdity of the corporate press and, you know, the far left identitarian end of the scale. So let's start with the bad news. And this is a very interesting piece from American Thinker called Americant from Midterms to End Times by Selwyn Duke. And it is rather, uh, you know, some may accuse it of being hyperbolic, using, you know, doomsday type language, but there are some things worth considering in this piece and I want to go over them with you and let's, let's dive deep before we get on to the Democrat side of the ledger. This is the article, quote, Truly great disasters come like a thief in the night. How many foresaw Rome's sacking in 410 AD, her collapse 66 years later, World War I or World War II? As for today, how many see that the United States is what, we, what some call a tipping point, what many others call a fourth turning? Whatever you call it, the American Republic is in its last days. This is too scary for many to contemplate, but there's something far scarier, playing ostrich and not being prepared for things to come. Obviously, the article starts off in you know, a very specific and intentional way, preparing you for the bad news which is coming. Back to the article. The so-called left, ever violent since its French Revolution birth and as power-hungry as ever, wholly controls the culture, the media, mainstream and social, academia and entertainment. This means it controls long-term politics since the later is downstream of culture, which, you know, incidentally was a line often used by the late, great Andrew Breitbart, ladies and gentlemen. Quote, so is big business, mind you, which is why the left controls most of it as well. This, of course, translates into funding. Trump's 2016 victory will not MAGA. It was merely a stay of execution, a prolonging of the inevitable. This should have been obvious in a country that could elect Barack Obama and then, like the, ta- the, like the Titanic having backed up to hit the iceberg again, re-elect him. If it wasn't, it should be obvious now that the Democrats have seized the House in a Watergate-level route. The notion that this was a standard result for a president's midterm is only comforting when viewing matters in relative terms. That is, the, quote, political spectrum always has a right and left side no matter how far left that spectrum moves. The problem, the author asks, civilizational ebbs and flows and collapses are governed by absolutes, such as right and wrong, not relative qualities, such as right and left. Thinking otherwise is like supposing your transition from stage one to stage four cancer as a 70-year-old is like when you went from a bruised arm to a broken one as a 12-year-old because, well, both involve movement toward diminished states of health. The 
author shows his hand a little bit in this next paragraph, but this isn't your grandfather's Democrat Party. Voters this time empowered socialistic to socialist to closet communist, sexual devolutionary, rabble-rousing, low IQ, no virtue, ignorant freaks... (laughs) who often encourage political violence by their Antifa brown shirt useful idiots, so it is not your great-grandfather's America either. <laughs> like I said, rather subtle, a rather subtle paragraph there, but definitely indicating uh, you know, the predisposition of the author who's writing this piece. And, you know, it's obviously not a, a, a cheerleading effort for the Democrats, put it that way. Back to the piece. Digging into the electoral numbers also tells a tale. 90% of blacks, 79% of Jews, 77% of Asians, 69% of Hispanics, and 59% of women voted Democrat, same as usual. Can we stop now with talk about Blexit and the walkaway movement or how Hispanics are natural conservatives, how Jews are waking up to the left's anti-Semitism and all other conservative self-delusion? People vote in accordance with their emotional and philosophical foundations. You cannot reason a man out of a position he has not reasoned himself into, as Jonathan Swift put it. Fooling oneself doesn't help. The voters are only getting worse, too, for three basic reasons. Immigration, indoctrination, and moral corruption. So just before we break down some of these reasons that the author offers, I think... It's interesting here, like, so how conservative is conservative? How conservative are you and how dedicated are you to the principles that you declare to be? So while I think it is, you know, often constructive and informative and enlightening to speak of statistics in, you know, in in means of breaking down, you know, specific parts of the nation or specific parts of the population in order to see where their voting preferences lie. Isn't this just, aren't we just now playing the identity politics game that we've been roped into at this point? You know, speaking on behalf of, you know, say someone who was sympathetic with the predisposition of the author. So 90% of blacks, 79% of Jews, 77% of Asians, 69% of Hispanics, 59% of women voted Democrat. Well, okay. Okay. So if you're presenting the argument to the minority vote, which is indeed mostly captured by the Democrats, and you're making an argument for why the Democrats are wrong for focusing on the minority vote, then surely focusing on the minority vote as a pillar of your fundamental argument isn't necessarily going to be productive. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. But how effective is it going to be? But let's, let's dig into the argument a little more. Demography is destiny. Ever since the Nation Rending Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 took effect in 68, 85 to 90% of our immigrants have been third worlders and 70 to 90% of them support Democrats upon naturalization. This has caused a historic demographic shift and attendant electoral one that has seen our nation go from 85 plus percent white in 1965 to only 61% non-Hispanic white today. So let's define further the political impact using conservative figures. We absorb approximately 1.3 million immigrants annually. 
If 1 million ultimately remain and are naturalized and 50% vote and 80% of that group breaks Democrat, it means a net plus for Democrats of 300,000 voters every year and 3 million every decade. The latter was Hillary Clinton's purported 2016 popular vote advantage. Now, I'm sure criticism of this is, this is me speaking, criticism of this kind of breakdown is often shallow and people will say, well, you know, this is a clearly racist point of view, but, you know, identity politics, right? So for, you know, the Democrats who often talk about the need for you know, protecting and highlighting various ethnic groups, uh, they have no reason, they have no problem speaking in specific terms about specific ethnic groups when it suits them. But if somebody on the right is to highlight these specific ethnic groups and say, well, mass immigration is leading to, you know, a a kind of critical mass of Democrat votes because 80% of them vote for the Democrats, then all of a sudden you're a racist. And like I said, I, I find that a, a particularly shallow way of looking at the problem. We could look at it culturally. Um, despite what we may think, you know, our, our cultural perspective in terms of quote-unquote the Western world and more specifically probably the Anglosphere because parts of Western Europe don't necessarily apply this kind of uh, historical narrative to politics like people from the Anglosphere do. But it is a very, very Eurocentric specific idea to have limited government, small taxation, these kinds of trends. It doesn't really exist anywhere else on planet Earth. And when you, uh, when you change your, you fundamentally change your immigration processes, well, people, people aren't in vacuums and there is no magic dirt. People don't set foot on the mainland of America or the UK or Australia and instantaneously forget all of the cultural uh, inborn, passed down knowledge that they've had from generation to generation to generation. And oftentimes people from other parts of the world will have a very, very different idea of government-specific role in the everyday life of people. And of course, you know, if, if you're presented with a binary choice, so one being small government, low taxation, you know, individual liberty versus big government, high taxation, more welfare, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if your cultural disposition is toward more of a more of an intrusive government presence in your everyday life, then naturally you're going to vote for the left. Now, whether this is you know a specific engineered situation that we have here with the with the types of immigration, the the level of immigration that we have, and its effect on the electoral process, or whether it's just it, it started off as some kind of noble ideal in the '60s to have you know quote unquote more diversity or something like that. Well, I guess that's to be argued over at a different time. But the reality is what the reality is, and it and it presents a very difficult problem for Democrats going into the uh, for Republicans going into the future. How do you address this? Now I'm. I'm of the belief that the time of political correctness is coming to an end as a, as a cultural driving force in our Western societies, simply because, you know, if you are part of the politically correct 
commentariat or the politically correct grouping, uh, there is no stopping. There cannot be any stopping. There must be constant progress. If you're not progressing, then you're a conservative. The last thing these people want is to be a conservative or to be classed as one. So each step down the politically correct path to identify victims or identify oppression or identify suppression, in turn, as the focus gets put on the new victim group or the new oppressed group, then, of course, by definition, other weight must be shed. For example, five years ago to be, you know, say a a black uh, gay man might have put you right at the top of the politically correct pecking order. Whereas today, you're somewhat commonplace and someone is more oppressed than you. How about the trans gay black person? How about the disabled trans Muslim person? They need more attention than you do. You can still succeed where they can't. And as political correctness grows more intense in its magnification of various social issues because it must keep progressing, then ultimately more and more people will be left behind. And if the politically correct commentariat suggests a certain course of action or a certain way of dealing with people whom they oppose, which is perhaps a little off the end of the scale, a little bit too extreme and you are one of the politically correct people who all of a sudden says, well, hang on, aren't we going a little bit too far with this? Well, then you are destined to find yourself in the ranks of the enemy of your former comrades. So it's only a matter of time. When you've got feminists being banned from speaking at universities because they deny, say, that a trans woman is a real woman, for example, which was the case with Jermaine Greer, author of The Female Eunuch, a feminist hero in the 60s and 70s, Jermaine Greer. Or if you have people writing, you know, documentaries about how Google search results are inherently racist or sexist, arguably one of the most liberal companies on the face of the earth, if not the biggest, then it's pretty clear that this whole politically correct train of thought is coming to a crashing end at some point. Maybe it's a race at this point. How soon that that political correctness can end before how soon people can be made aware of it. Another little paragraph here from this article. So let's crunch some numbers. Between Trump's 2016 victory and Election Day 2020, more than 10 million Americans will have died, mostly older. They're a relatively conservative voting demographic. They will more or less be replaced, however, by approximately 16 million young people who will turn 18 during those years. Unlike their elders, though, they'll disproportionately cast ballots for hardcore statists. Given this ongoing immigration and indoctrination-enabled electoral degradation process, it is now clearer why Republicans have lost the popular vote in six of the last seven presidential contests. Note that during our entire pre-2000 history, Republican candidates won the presidency while losing the popular vote only twice. Now it has happened twice since 2000 alone. 
with the GOP capturing the popular vote in just one of its three victories, George W. Bush in 2004, how long can we continue losing it while winning the Electoral College? We can't pull inside straights forever. Moreover, the cards won't be there all at all once Texas turns blue, and the warning signs are already evident. Rationalise all you want, but leftist nuts Andrew Crackerstate Gillum, Irish Bob the phony Mexican O'Rourke, and Stacey Suen Saw Loser Abrams came close to winning in respectively Florida, Texas, and Georgia. Taliban bubblehead Kirsten Cinema did win in Arizona. We're further down the rabbit hole than you think, Alice. Now, of course, uh, there's going to be accusations of, say, voter fraud at this point, which, you know, I may have some sympathy with, um, but, you know, I I don't want to be the bitter pill and I don't want to be the wet blanket. But until investigations happen and until evidence is uncovered, for example, uh, anomalous results in congressional races isn't necessarily evidence of fraud. It might be evidence of something to look into in case there is fraud, but, you know, uh, unexpected results are not necessarily fraud-based because, I mean, do you want do you want to be a Democrat? The Democrats spent all of the last two years saying that the reason Donald Trump won was because of Russian meddling and Russian collusion without any evidence whatsoever. And Donald Trump winning by any relative standard was an anomalous result. So this in of itself is not evidence of any kind of tampering. So whilst I do have some sympathy with those who suggest that voter fraud is rife for a number of reasons, until we get to the point of actual investigations and actual charges and people actually being held to account for those results in which voter fraud was rife, I'm afraid the only option we have is to continue and to continue as though it didn't happen because for better or worse, like it or lump it, without those investigations and without some kind of, you know, magnifying glass put over the situation, the pe- those Democrats are going to be in office, whether you like it or not. Back to the article. Leftists are already talking about 2022 with a lineup resembling the bar scene in Star Wars, but the details don't matter. Whatever the Democrat presidential ticket, it'll be a ticket to hell. When the Democrats seize the presidency in both legislative chambers, they will eventually, which they will, which they eventually will, pardon me, they'll have a justification for behaving as tyrannically as they fancy we have. They'll see it as simply responding in kind to a precedent we set. You'll have Antifa in power. That's an argument, you know, a lot of people have put forward. I would argue, I would argue that they're going to do it anyway, so that's not necessarily relevant. You know, um, they'll, they'll say, well, whatever the Republicans have done this time out, we're going to do. And, you know, Republicans, well-meaning Republicans, principled Republicans have spent the last two years saying, well, we can't do, you know, if we go ahead with this kind of mode of attack, whether it's some kind of Twitter attack or whether it's, you know, 
antics in the Senate or the House. Well, this just means the Democrats are going to do it to us, to which I would suggest, to which I would suggest, of course, the Democrats are going to do it to you, but they're going to do it to you whether you win or not, whether you do it or not. They're going to do it anyway, because that's what it's all about power. It's all about exercising power. One more line from the piece here. <clears throat> there no longer is an American people. There are peoples living in America. We're balkanized not just racially, ethnically, and religiously, but also ideologically, sexually, and philosophically. We speak different languages, literally and figuratively. With open talk of open borders, socialism is now is on one side and nationalism on the other. The Overton window is now so wide that each end occupies a different time zone. Frankly, many of us hate each other. If our union were a marriage, we'd have divorced long ago. So this article will be in the show notes and you can read over it yourself, but there are some things to consider there. Specifically with immigration, cultural outlooks and whatnot. It doesn't paint a rosy picture and it presents a problem for the Republicans and the right side of the spectrum. How are you going to be able to convince these new voters that are coming online, so to speak, that your way is the right way? How do you even begin to overcome, you know, say things like, let's, what about the black community, for example? 90% of the black community still voting for the Democrats. Now, some kind of some kind of method has to be established some kind of way yeah you know, problems that aren't necessarily specific to the black community but are definitely highlighted by the democrats things like intergenerational welfare dependence you know drug problems uh, broken families republicans have been presenting you know, responses to these issues for years and years and years, and it doesn't seem like it's having an effect. So how do you begin to pry away those voters from the Democrats, who many would argue have led them to the situations that we just highlighted? Because arguably it has to be done. And while many people say, well, if, if you know, if 20% of the black community starts voting Republican, it's all over for the Democrats. Well, the same thing applies on the Democrat side, but in reverse. What if they could get another 20, what if they could get another 10% of the white population to vote Democrat? If that happens, ladies and gentlemen, the Republicans are done. They're finished. It's all over. For today, from the Atlantic, the Democrats' white people problem. Do you see the juxtaposition here? Donald Trump likes to pit elite and non elite white people against each other. Why do white liberals play into his trap? I want them to talk about racism every day, Steve Bannon, President Donald Trump's former strategist, told the American Prospect last year. If the left is focused on race and identity, we will go with economic nationalism. We can crush the Democrats. 
Bannon was tapping into old American tradition. As early as the 1680s, powerful white people were serving up racism to assuage the injuries of class, elevating the status of white indentured servants over that of enslaved black people. Some two centuries later, W.E.B. Dubois observed that poor white people were compensated partly by a public and psychological wage. The wages of whiteness, as the historian David Rodiger memorably put it. These wages pit people of different races against one another, averting a coalition based on shared economic interests. Interestingly about this piece, what I find is the author, although uh, specifically identifying Steve Bannon's comment, if they if the le- if the left is focused on race and identity, we will go with economic nationalism. We can crush the Democrats, and also later quoted as saying, "We want to pour f- gasoline on the fire." I, they they understand it, but they completely misdiagnose, in my opinion, what Bannon was talking about. Because, you know, as we were discussing with political correctness, accelerating the end of political correctness can only be a net beneficial to people on the Republican side. Perhaps it's a way, a a method of uh, removing the vice grip on various demographics and various ethnic groups in the population. And, you know, you can't confront political correctness face to face. Because, hey, you're, you're a white guy. You've got white guy opinions. You only think like a white guy does. You don't have any kind of cultural perspective that isn't bathed in white privilege. So your opinion, therefore, is relatively useless. You can't confront that with logic, with facts, with evidence, with argument. And so if we understand that political correctness is ultimately a cultural movement which resembles somewhat of a snake eating its own tail then the only way to end political correctness becomes to accelerate dinner rather than trying to pry the tail from the snake's mouth. Back to the article. On election night 2016, my social crowd of San Francisco progressives was mystified as to why white people in a few Rust Belt states, many of them union members who'd previously voted for Obama, had just delivered Trump the election. That same night, I wrote an essay for the Harvard Business Review in which I explained what I, and then in brackets, a white liberal law professor. So just like the the predetermined opinions and biases of the previous author was evident in the article, so too here. The need to, you know, the need to throw oneself on the mercy of the progressive court by saying, I'm a white liberal I have prejudice, inborn prejudices. I am privileged. I am elite. (laughs) Please, please, even though I am all of these things, I'm still one of you. Still listen to what I'm telling you. You may get some value out of this. It's the exact kind of, it's the exact same thought process. The declaration of one's, you know, intention is obvious from the get-go. I explained that I, a white liberal law professor, thought so many of my white, liberal, highly educated peers were failing to see that middle-income white people had voted for Trump not so much because they liked him, though many did, or because they were racist, although plenty were, (laughs) but foremost as an expression of class anger. 
After the essay went viral, I expanded it into a book, White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America. All told, I've spent a good deal of the past two years talking with progressives about the broken relationship between elite white people and the white working class. Well, let's see, the broken relationship between elite white people and the white working class has definitely been evident at least since Karl Marx. (laughs) Remember, comrade, you know, the person writing this article, the original war of, you know, overturning the uh, the oppression, the systems of oppression, the chains of oppression was between the working class and the white it was and the elites. It was only for the white people. We're talking about Europe here. This was a European another European Eurocentric ideal. Just as you know small government and low taxation and individual liberty taking the top seat at the table is a very Eurocentric ideal. Unfortunately, so too is socialism and so too is communism. One was a little more successful in other parts of the world than the other, although one has been a lot more successful in terms of objective, attainable, you know, wealth and freedom and prosperity for people around the world. Spoiler alert, it's not socialism. I use the term working class to refer to, this is the article, I use the term working class to refer to Americans with household incomes between the 30th and 80th percentiles. This group, which has a median, which has median earnings of about $75,000, is also commonly referred to as, quote, middle class. Democrats presently have a unique opportunity to appeal to the working class because their base is newly open to a populist message. Income inequality has gotten so bad that people across the political spectrum, college educated and non-college educated alike, are feeling a serious pinch. Bernie Sanders got 72% of the votes from Democrats under 30 in the 2016 primaries, which, as we know from the previous article, is that number is only set to expand by at least 16 million people. And, you know, we could probably say a, a, a conservative guesstimate would be, you know, 10 to 12 of those 10 to 12 million of those 16 million are likely to follow suit. From Democrats under 30 in the 2016 primaries, in part by decrying the rigged economy. Now, people tend to forget that. That, you know, the Bernie people, Bernie Bernie Sanders was the populism of the left. And those people didn't go away. Many of them either voted for Donald Trump or chose not to vote at all in 2016. This is true, in a binary choice for a president. But how many of those people did Republicans expect to vote for them in the midterm elections? I would suggest a few Republicans, perhaps a few too many, perhaps considered those votes to be in the bag. But the populism on the left isn't going away. In fact, I I suspect, and this is just my opinion, that the rise of Donald Trump to the presidency come 2020, that populism on the left is only going to get more entrenched and perhaps more powerful. Back to the piece. In the past three decades, education costs have nearly tripled at public universities and doubled at private ones. At the same time, too many people with a college degree are settling for jobs that don't require one. Unemployment may be low, but the median real wage has remained flat since Trump's election. Housing costs, meanwhile, continue to rise. 
In 2014, General Social Survey found that only 35% of millennials described themselves as middle class, down from 46% of similarly aged people in 2002. All of this should add up to explosive potential for Democrats, but many appear to be taking the wrong lessons from recent political turmoil. As of this writing, the results of the midterm elections are unknown, but one thing is clear. Democrats have banked a lot of time on the prospect that their voters' anger can outmatch the anger of the voters who propelled Trump to office. Whether or not this strategy wins a given election, riding off an ocean of rural to Rust Belt red is a terrible strategy in the long term. If the Democrats want to win and keep winning with a mandate to put their policies into effect, they need to face hard truths. Remember, this is a this is a self-confessed white educated liberal writing this. This is not a Republican article like the last one was decrying the Republicans' chances in elections moving forward. This is a white liberal decrying the, the liberals' chances in elections moving forward. That's why I thought it was I thought it was interesting, these two back to back. <clears throat> demography is not destiny. So in the previous article where demography is destiny, this one, the white liberals say demography is not destiny. So they're the, the, the white educated liberals less, you know, they don't like their chances of retaining uh, the, you know, the minority votes as much as the Republican author of the previous piece believes they will, which is interesting in of itself, right? Quote, why not just wait for the white working class to die off? Asked an audience member at last year's Berkeley Festival of Ideas. I get this question a lot and I always reply, do you understand now why they voted for Trump? Your attitude is offensive and Trump is their middle finger. As the United States moves toward becoming a majority minority nation, some on the left have come to believe that Democrats will be rescued by demography that the party can ignore the white working class and focus instead on communities of colour and on young people and single women of all races. You'll remember the stats that we just went through in the previous piece, right? This is wishful thinking. First, the US won't be a majority minority until about 2045. If you think Democrats or the country can survive this degree of political chaos for a quarter century, I don't know what to tell you. Second, geography matters. Minority voters aren't equally distributed throughout the country, and the votes of rural and Rust Belt whites are overrepresented because of the design of the Electoral College and the Senate. Moreover, even in 2040, 37 states will remain majority white. State legislatures control redistricting, which influences the composition of the House of Representatives, as well as important areas of social policy like education. Are Democrats really willing to give up on most states? Economic anxiety is central to populism. Many decent, sensible people voted for Trump because they believe that neither the Democrats nor the Republicans had stopped the downward spiral of the middle class, and they were right. Those who deny that economics is central to the current wave of populism like to point out that many Trump voters had high incomes. That's true, but irrelevant. I would suggest it's irrelevant because as Hillary Clinton rather, you know, uh, happily pointed out in an interview following the 2016 uh, election that the highest GDP areas voted for her and not for Donald Trump. It was actually the poorer people that voted for Donald Trump and not Hillary Clinton. The swing voters who helped decide the 2016 election weren't blue bloods, they were blue collar. 
Some political scientists have downplayed these voters' economic pain or presented financial hardship and racial resentment as an either-or. For example, one study discounts the influence of economics by focusing on 2012 to 2016. The demise of the American dream began decades earlier. Does conceding that populism involves economics mean ignoring bigotry? No, this is this is the you know the kind of liberal bias coming through once again in the author. Trump is offering a populism interlaced with racism. <clears throat> but it's also true that the right is goading elite white people into dismissing non-elite white people as racists. <laughs> I don't know how much goading they need. It's pretty, it's pretty, all you have to do is throw on any kind of uh, Hollywood film or any kind of mainstream corporate media or any kind of, you know, those crappy TV daytime panel shows like The View. They, they all think that the, you know, the, the quote unquote uneducated white people are racist for voting for Donald Trump. I mean, it was a white lash after all, right? <laughs> I don't know how much goading is going on here. But see, that's the thing. <clears throat> This author takes um, Steve Bannon's comments at the beginning out of context. By throwing gasoline on the fire, you're trying to accelerate the downfall of the politically correct because if they want to make everything about race and racial identity and identity politics, then you can't confront them as a white person, as a white male. You, you are out of the loop. You're not to be listened to. Unless, of course, you're a hardcore progressive, like Bernie Sanders, for example, an old, rich, white man. Then you're allowed in the club. Otherwise, if you're just a middle-class white schlub with a, you know, a median income, struggling to pay bills and taxes and pay for the house and put food on the table, well, your opinion is irrelevant and you're merely a Nazi who voted for the orange menace, Donald Trump. That's it. That's where your conversation ends. So I think what Steve Bannon is attempting to do, or at least what he was attempting to do when he was in the White House, is facilitate the downgrade and the degradation of the hardcore ultra left-wing identitarians to focus entirely on intersectionality and racial politics in order to increase the divide between not races, but people who are struggling financially, i.e. the middle class, who have arguably been forgotten and ignored for decades and decades, and present yourself as the party for them and the opponents as the party of overpaid, slovenly, you know, right up their own backside professors at liberal universities who pontificate and theorise from textbooks from their altar instead of living in the real world. Maybe that's the dichotomy that you're trying to accelerate, not necessarily between the races. And look, arguably, uh, the election of Donald Trump was, you know, there's a couple of ways you can look at. There's infinite ways you can carve it up. As I said, we're doing the post-mortem on the midterms. The post-mortem for 2016 is still going on. The post-mortem for 2008 is still going on. 2000, people are still talking about George Bush and Al Gore, right? So these post-mortems will continue forever because there are an infinite number of ways you can look at it. Now, some people might say that Donald Trump was elected because he gave hope, like, like Barack Obama did in 2008, hope and change, a real change candidate. Some people might say he was elected because of his appeal to you know, the blue-collar workers with the, his blue-collar style, his unpolitical style, and I tend to have some sympathy with that view. 
Another way might be to say that he appealed to the voters that once were either through perception or, you know, real or otherwise, that the Democrats purported to represent for the longest time, that being the working class and the middle class. While the Republicans were perceived, rightly or wrongly, to be the party of big business, the country club kids, right? The wealthy country club, country club kids versus the blue-collar knockabouts. But for whatever reason or another, the, the Democrats decided instead of engaging these middle-class and working-class voters over the last previous, previous few years, maybe we can go back 10, 20, 30 years, they decided instead to, instead to target other voting classes and other voting groups. And the move toward identity politics and the hard left theoretical Marxist kind of way of viewing politics was evident and clear and in full swing. And thus began the alienation of the blue collar and the working class voters. And one may say, rather than Donald Trump and the Republican Party being a party of, the, you know, the champions the wants and the needs and the economic needs of the middle class and the working class, maybe they're just the team that noticed this huge group of people before the Democrats did and decided to make an appeal to them. And guess what? They got Donald Trump elected. I thought, wow, wow, shit, maybe we should appeal to these people more often. Now, if you don't think that the Democrats have paid attention to this and if you don't think that that they weren't watching in 2016. If you don't think that they were thinking about how to take back the White House the very next day, then you'd be very much mistaken. And if you don't believe me, listen to Nancy Pelosi on election night. It's about ending wealthy special interest free reign over Washington. But more than anything, it's about what a new Democratic majority will mean in the lives of hardworking Americans. That's what it's about. Democrats pledge a Congress that works for the people, for the people. Lower the cost of health care by lowering the cost of prescription drugs. Raise workers' wages with strong economic growth by rebuilding the infrastructure of America. Clean up corruption to make Washington work for all Americans. We will take real, very, very strong legislative action to legislate, to negotiate down the price control of prescription drugs that is burdening seniors and families across America. We will deliver a transformational investment in America's infrastructure to create more good-paying jobs, rebuilding our roads, bridges, schools, water systems, uh, broadband networks, and schools and housing, and beyond. We will drain the swamp of dark interest money Because when we do, Americans have greater confidence in everything their Congress works on. From Drain the swamp. Did you notice all of the appeals that weren't made in that speech? Where was the appeal to protect the LGBTQ community, for example, like it was circa 2016, ladies and gentlemen? Where was the appeal to single out specific voters of minority classes as it was in 2016. You don't think the Democrats have evolved? You don't think the Democrats have changed? You don't think they're learning? You don't think they saw what happened in 2016 and thought, I'll have some of that? 
sometimes we get into the habit of giving our opponents no credit whatsoever. And whilst one may think that the rise of MAGA or Donald Trump could never possibly be usurped by someone on the other side, then perhaps one should spend a moment or two thinking about the kind of person and the kind of people that put Donald Trump there in the first place. And ask yourself, is there any possible way? Is there no possible chance whatsoever that these people could ever swing back to a Democrat message? What if the Democrat message was just like the one that they bought two years ago? Then what happens? With that, guys, thanks for joining us. If you want to become a supporter of the show, please head over to patreon.com forward slash boogie bumper. If you want to subscribe, hit the subscribe button in your preferred podcast player. And if you want to get involved, please follow me on Twitter at boogie bumper. Till next time, stay calm, stay rational. God bless. And we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.